Welcome to Sunday Sermons from the Williamsburg Community Chapel, brought to you by the Chapel Podcast Network. Let's open our Bibles to the book of Genesis today, chapter 22, verses 1 through 19. And I'll read the first two verses for us now, as we prepare to hear from Pastor Claude Marshall, as he helps us continue in our summer series where we're learning about how the Lord tests. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Well, I'm Claude Marshall, one of the pastors here. Although you haven't seen me in the pulpit for a while, I'm happy to be back in the pulpit this morning as we continue a series that Travis started for us last week on how God tests his people. Now, Travis reminded us that God uses tests in our lives for a purpose, and he gave us an outline on how God uses testing in our lives to do something in us, to refine us, our faith, to reform our faith, to teach us truth, truth about us and about himself. And the reality is that in order for us to become the people that God desires us to be, it's going to take some sacrifice on our part and on God's part. So this morning as we look at this passage from Genesis chapter 22 on this amazing test that God put Abraham through, I hope that we'll be able to see that, that God requires sacrifice from us and from himself as he makes us into those people he wants us to be. Now, maybe your faith has been tested at times. I know mine has. And when that happens, we begin to wonder what it is that God is trying to teach us or maybe what he wants to accomplish in us. And if you can think that way, you can certainly relate to Abraham because Abraham's entire life pretty much was a test. One test after another as he learned to walk by faith and not by sight as he followed God. Genesis 12.1 introduces this man named Abraham. He's called Abram there, but we're just going to call him Abraham all the way through. He gets a name change along the way, but we'll call him Abraham. God comes to this man named Abraham and tells him to do something that's a little different. In Genesis 12.1, he says, Abraham, I want you to leave your country. I want you to leave your kindred. I want you to leave your household. And I want you to go to a land that I'm going to show you. He didn't give him a travel document that told him how to get there exactly. He didn't give it a triple-A trip tick to figure out how to ride that way. He just said, go. And amazingly, Abraham, by faith, packed everything up on his camels and took off, following God's direction. And it was a test whether he would believe God or not. In Genesis 12, 2, the very next verse, we get this amazing promise of what God wants to do through this man named Abraham. He says, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And he goes on to say that of your descendants, there will be no way to count them. They will be so many, it's like the sand of the seashore. And that's an amazing thing, because Abraham and his wife Sarah, well, they didn't have any children. They were, Abraham was 75 years old at the time, Sarah was probably 10 years younger, But she was barren. She had an unproductive womb. But the promise was received. Abraham and Sarah tried to believe it. But then nothing happened. 
nothing happened for quite a while. So it came to Abraham's mind that maybe he should take one of his male servants of his household and make him his heir, kind of adopt him. God showed up again to Abraham and said, no, that's not what's going to happen. He said in verse 4 of, of chapter 15 of Genesis, your very own son shall be your heir. Well, nonetheless, Sarah remained barren. Nothing happened for a bit longer time. And so Sarah finally convinced Abraham that maybe it would be better if he were to take her maidservant, Hagar, and have a child with her. And he was convinced and did so and had Ishmael. Perhaps Ishmael could be the son of the promise through whom the promise that God had made would extend into the nations of the world. But again, God showed up and said, nope, that's not the way it's going to work. And he told Abraham and Sarah that they would have a child. Now, the problem is that by this time, you know, Abraham's about as old as dirt. He's 100 years old. Sarah's 90 years old. I don't know too many people at 190 having children. Do you? Well, they didn't either. But they believed God. And the amazing thing happened is they had a child. They named him Isaac. And when that happened, and it's described in Genesis 21, the promise again was repeated that through this child, Abraham's name would be made great. And the whole earth would be blessed through them. Well, you know, Travis last week reminded us that God uses these tests in our life, these tests of our faith, to refine our faith. And that certainly was a part of what was happening to Abraham. His faith was being refined. It was being changed. It was being purified. It was being made stronger. Abraham was learning that to obey God required sacrifice. He already knew that in part. He left his home, his kindred, his household to go to a new land. He waited for 25 years for the promise of Genesis 12-2 to begin to come to fruition in his life. But his faith was still being refined all along the way. The question is, when we are facing tests, will our faith be refined? Will it be purified? Will we be stronger in our belief and trust in God? Well, Abraham found that to be true. And we can find that to be true as well, because Abraham also found his faith being reformed, that second step. One of Abraham's faith challenges was to believe that God could fulfill his promises without Abraham's help. It seems as if Abraham was a believer of that old adage, which is found nowhere in the Bible, but repeated all the time, and you know it, God helps those who help themselves. Well, Abraham seemed to believe that because he kept trying to help God to fulfill the promises that God had made him. Well, how did he do that? Well, you know, he did go to God and say, maybe you should take one of my servants and make him my heir and be the one who blesses him and the promise comes through him. And then he had a child with Hagar named Ishmael. Maybe that could be the, the child of the promise. It was as if Abraham was trying to help God out. God, you've made this promise to me, but nothing's happening. So I'm not sure I can believe you, so maybe I should help. But there's another time or two when this happened. At one point, Abraham and Sarah were traveling, and they were in the land that God had brought them to, but there was a famine, and they realized they needed to go somewhere else to get food, so they went to Egypt. And Abraham said of Sarah that she was a woman beautiful in appearance. And so he told her, when we get to Egypt, tell everybody you're my sister. Because if they know you're my wife and they find that you're beautiful, they may do away with me to get to you. 
So she did that, and then she did it a second time in another place they went. Abraham believed God's promise, but he seemed to have this thought that maybe I should help God along, just to make sure the promise gets to fruition. Abraham tried to do that because his faith needed to be reformed, changed a bit. He needed to learn that God alone is the one who fulfills his promises, that God's sufficiency and power are enough to make whatever he says come to reality in our lives. Well, we fast forward to Genesis 22 that we read this morning, a test of sacrifice. And this time we see that this test reveals truth to Abraham, truth about who he is and about his faith, truth about who God is and what God will do. God does what we see is unthinkable. He commands Abraham to take his son, his only son, as God says of him, Isaac, and take him and sacrifice him on Mount Moriah. This command is loaded with problems. Every commentator you read, anybody who speaks of this, we don't know what to do with it. God commands something that seems unthinkable, out of the ordinary. In fact, it's in direct opposition to what God has already said in Genesis 9, verse 6, when he said this, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Certainly, when Moses comes along after Abraham, God gives a command in Exodus 20, verse 13, which again goes totally against this test, this command that he gave Abraham. God says in the great commandments, the Ten Commandments we have, Thou shalt not murder. Well, that's what he's asking or telling Abraham to do. But it also goes against what we know to be the heart of God. In several passages in the Old Testament, we see where God speaks of the fact that he despises child sacrifice. One of those places is in Jeremiah 19.5, where he is accusing his own people, the Israelites. And he says, they have built the high places to Baal to burn their sons in the fire as a burnt offering to Baal, which I did not command or decree, nor did it come into my mind. Abraham gets this command from God, and it seems like the supreme test for sure of anyone's faith. God telling Abraham to do something that Abraham would know was against the very heart of God. We know it's against the law of God. It seems completely out of sync with who God is. And the promise he's already given to Abraham, that through this, your son, the whole world will be blessed. And if Abraham had obeyed God's command, which he actually does, we'll see, in a way, it would seem to Abraham that the expected outcome of Abraham's obedience would certainly not be blessing. It would be literally doing away with the only son through whom blessing was to come. Killing Isaac would seem to be the end of God's promises. So how could he move forward in obedience to God's command when the outcome seemed to go exactly against and cancel the great promise he had been given? What kind of faith does it take to pay it, pass a test like that? It seems impossible. Well, maybe you've had some tests in your life that have seemed impossible too. I'll share one of mine. It goes way back to 10th grade, Algebra 2. <laughs> Like Travis shared last week, I too am math challenged. Somehow I made it through a year of Algebra 2 and got to the final exam, a two-day exam, two periods, 
consecutive days, two parts, part one and part two. Part one and part two would each count 50 points, a total of 100 points. I sat down to take the first exam, part one, went through it. It was hard, but I felt like, okay, I think I did okay. I think I might have a chance to pass this. Showed up the next day in Algebra two class, and the teacher, before handing out the test, handed out these little cards. And on the card, there was a name written, C. Marshall, that would be me, and under the name written, a number, the number I had gotten right on part one of the exam the day before. I looked at the number and thought, really? <laughs> That's all I got right? And I'm not any good at Algebra two, but I can do basic math. And I realized the only way I was going to pass this exam was if I got a perfect score on the second day, part two. I couldn't miss a question. I could not have a point taken off. Well, you might imagine the sense of despair I was having. This is an impossible test. Why did she give me this number? It took me 15 minutes of angst before I even opened up the test booklet. <laughs> I just knew I'm toast. I'm done. And then I thought, oh no, I'm going to have to go to summer school. <laughs> I don't want to do that. Well, I did what I could do in the last little bit of time I had. And no, I didn't pass the test. <laughs> but as I started taking the test, I think I mumbled something like this. God, if you're up there, you've got to help me with this test. And the teacher's response was, no talking during this test. <laughs> but somehow I passed the course. Not very well, but I passed the course. And I remember thinking, well, maybe there is a God after all. <laughs> maybe there is. Well, Abraham's test was like that, pretty impossible. So what did he do about it? Being told to kill his son, his only son, the child of the blessing. Well, verse 3 of chapter 22 tells us right away that he got up early and set out the next day for a three-day journey to Mount Moriah. And when he got there, he told his servants who were with him to stay behind to wait as he and Isaac went up to offer a sacrifice. And then they would come back. So he took Isaac and the bundle of wood and the fire and the knife. And they went up and he settled everything in place. And he bound Isaac and set him on the, whole, the little altar he had made on rocks and wood and got ready to use the knife on his only son. Now he had used the knife before on this son. On his eighth day of birth, after birth, he had circumcised him according to the command of God. But this time, this was different. And just as he was ready to put that knife into his son, an angel of the Lord called out, and we have it in Genesis 22, verse 12. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abraham looked up. Just at that moment, he saw not far away there was a ram, a lamb, a male lamb, a ram caught in a thicket. There was the sacrifice being provided by God. And again, God learned that yes, God is able and sufficient to keep his promises, even though he may test us along the way to find that out. But think for a moment just what Abraham was really willing to do. 
Abraham was willing to see the entire blessing, the entire promise of blessing that God had given him, a blessing that would go to the ends of the earth that would affect the entire human race. He was willing to see that go out the window if that's what it took to require, was required to obey God in that point. That's what the sacrifice of Isaac really would have meant. As far as Abraham knew, the death of the promise that he had been given. Well, how do we figure this out? What is happening here? How do we interpret this? Well, fortunately, the Bible is our best way of interpreting it itself. And the Bible, the New Testament, helps us to understand what was going on. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 19, it tells us something about Abraham and what he was thinking. This is what it says. It says that he, Abraham, reasoned that God was able even to raise him, that is Isaac, from the dead. And somehow, Abraham had in his mind the idea that God could even bring Isaac back from the dead if Abraham had killed him. Now, you've got to remember, Abraham's never seen this before. He doesn't know resurrection, and he's never had a direct promise from God that says God would do that if Abraham obeyed the, promise, the command to kill his son. He simply believed in God. He simply trusted him. He acted in obedience to what God had said. So what did these truths teach Abraham? What did he learn? What truth was revealed through the testing that he had? Well, I'd say two things, really. He learned again that God is always true to his promises. That when God says something that he will do, he will do it. Even if it seems late and delayed, even if it seems contrary to the way we would think he would do it. You know the old adage that's often said about God, don't you? He's never late, but he's very rarely early. And that seemed to be true in Abraham's existence and his experience. God showed up, but sometimes just in time. But the second thing I think he learned was this idea that the way God planned to fulfill his promise of Genesis 12 too, God's great promise to bless the entire world, all the peoples of the earth, through Abraham and his seed, his son, and those that came afterwards. Now, don't miss this. There had to be a sacrifice. And that's the key here. There had to be a sacrifice. Yes, Isaac was spared, but a sacrifice still had to be made. Isaac was returned again to a relationship with his father. Abraham could take Isaac home and share him again with his mother, Sarah, Abraham didn't have to go home and say to Sarah, can you imagine, by the way, I killed our son today. How could he have done that? But he didn't have to. A different sacrifice was provided. God didn't, didn't simply call it off, though. He didn't simply say, oh, Abraham, I'm only kidding. This is just a test, and I grade on a curve. You're okay. He didn't say that. He provided the sacrifice. God did. For this one, it was a ram caught in a thicket. There's another place where we can understand what Abraham was thinking, what was going on. It's what Jesus says in John chapter 8. Jesus is arguing with some of the religious leaders, some of the, the Jewish leaders of the day. They're trying to figure him out, and they don't like him, and he's arguing with them about the belief about God. And he says this, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day, he saw it and was glad. Now, this is in John chapter 8, verse 56. 
Jesus says to the religious leaders of his day, the Jews who were his enemies, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day, he saw it and was glad. And so the question we have to ask is, well, what did Abraham see? <laughs> what did he see that Jesus describes as my day? And I think what Abraham saw is what he actually acted out when God called him to sacrifice his son. It was, so to speak, a preview of the redemption that God had planned before the creation of the world. He had a snapshot of what it looked like, the way God would redeem lost sinners. God the Father would offer his one and only Son as a sacrifice for his people. His grace, his forgiveness would be offered freely to us, but only because God provided a sacrifice at the cost of his own Son. He bore the penalty. It was absolutely necessary that a substitutionary sacrifice be made if we are to be right with God forever. That sacrifice is well described by the words of the prophet Isaiah in chapter 53, 7 of the book of Isaiah, describing that sacrifice, the one we know as Jesus. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. For Christ there would be no substitute. There would be no ram stuck in a thicket. Jesus himself would go to the cross, embracing the curse, embracing the cross, dying for the sins of many, as he said. For him, that was obedience to the Father. So Abraham pondered the promises of God in his day and somehow was able to look ahead and all the messianic hopes were caught up in the thought there of what he had acted out, all the fulfillment of his hopes and joys, he understood someday would come through the one who would be Jesus. Well, we know that Abraham's faithfulness in this most difficult of tests led to the renewal of promises, what we read near the end of chapter 22, verses 16 to 18. By myself I have sworn, God says, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and all your offspring shall possess the gates of their enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Because Abraham was willing to obey God while putting the promise on the line, even risk losing it, the promise was renewed and fulfilled. And who are the ones who benefit from that promise? We are. We are. So the last question I have as I close is this. How in the world did Abraham do it? How could he possibly have acted that out? Not really knowing for sure what was going to happen, but doing it because he had faith in God and he wanted to obey him. Again, it seemed like an impossible test. How could he pass it? Once more... Words of the New Testament tell us, this time it's the Apostle Paul, who tells us exactly the tool Abraham used to pass the test. Here it is, it's in Romans chapter 4, verses 20 and 21, where Paul wrote this about Abraham. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith. 
and he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Or I like the way the J.B. Phillips translation puts Romans 4.20, and this is the tool I suggest that Abraham used and we can use. He says it this way, Abraham, he, refused to allow any distrust of a definite pronouncement of God to make him waver. Let me say that again. He refused to allow any distrust of a definite pronouncement of God to make him waver. Well, I started by saying that in order for us to become the people that God wants us to be, it requires sacrifice on our part and on God's part. Sometimes we might be called to give up things as disciples of Jesus. Sometimes it could be even our most prized possessions. I think if scripture is true, it could even mean that we have to give up at times our dearest loved ones. Still, most of our sacrifices for Christ will pale in comparison to what Abraham was called to do. But here's the deal. God's promise is real. He always promises to provide. And he says so in another place that Paul wrote in Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Again, a tool we can use when testing comes is this. Refusing to allow any distrust of a definite pronouncement of God to make us waver. May we, by the grace of God, take this tool and use it in everyday life. Thank you for joining us today. Here at the Williamsburg Community Chapel, we are all about making disciples of Jesus Christ. So wherever you are on your spiritual journey, we are excited to help you connect to Christ and His community. Have a blessed day. Thank you.